Well, I'm happy that each of you guys are here tonight. If we haven't met, my name is Michael. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're going to continue on into the book of Matthew. So if you have your Bibles with you, if you want to grab one in the pew in front of you, we're going to be in chapter 17. Um, two weeks ago, no, three weeks ago, we were in uh, chapter, verses 14 through 20, and then the week after that, we talked about why verse 21 isn't there. And then last week, talked about some nice heavy stuff, the problem of evil and suffering, And so now we are going to be back where we left off, starting in verse 22. If you look at your Bibles, um, 22 and 23, those verses are kind of their own little section. So I'm going to take like two minutes to talk about those separately. And then most of our time will be on verses 24 through 27. So let's start by reading verses 22 and 23. When they came together in Galilee, they being Jesus and the disciples, he said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. So this is one of the kind of seemingly random, uh, what we call the messianic death predictions of Jesus. Um, Random meaning it's not always clear, at at least initially, why Matthew puts them in the place that he does in the narrative of Jesus. Um, The first time Jesus warns the disciples that he's going to die is right after uh, Peter declares that Jesus is the Messiah. Almost as if Matthew or Jesus are like, um, we're getting this picture where Jesus says, yes, I am the Messiah, but here's what that means. It means that I am going to have to die, to be killed and then be raised. The second time, this time here in Matthew 17, Jesus predicts his death shortly after the transfiguration. So Peter, James, and John have just seen Jesus glorified right before their very eyes and they come down the mountain and it's as if Matthew is trying to make sure we know like yes that is the, the son of God the Messiah but what that means is that he's going to be killed and raised and then the third time coming up in chapter 20 Jesus warns the disciples right before they actually go into the city of Jerusalem so he's preparing them his disciples for what's about to come this time in Matthew 17 is the first time that Jesus uses the phrase that he will be delivered so some of your translations will say betrayed or handed over um, those who he has handed over to, the ones betraying him, are the ones that are going to kill him. Um, and it says then that he uh, tells them that he will be raised on the third day. Verse 23 tells us the disciples were filled with grief at the thought of his betrayal and his death, which tells us that they could like, just really truly could not understand or hear Jesus' promise about the resurrection. He told them three times that this would happen, And yet only after his resurrection were they like, oh, yeah, he said that this would happen. So I think these little pictures that Matthew gives us of Jesus kind of predicting what's going to happen, these moments, actually serve two purposes. One, to remind us, the reader, all along, that this was the plan for Jesus, the Messiah, that he was supposed to die and be raised. And the second thing, Matthew is showing us just how wild it was, the concept of a Messiah that would be betrayed and that would die. The disciples simply could not comprehend what Jesus was saying. So we get these three pictures, these three moments, these three predictions, each of them Jesus spelling out very clearly what was about to happen to him. I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'll be betrayed, I will be killed, and then I will be raised. And so the thought of a Messiah, this like kingly figure to rescue their people, the thought that a Messiah would be betrayed was unthinkable to them. The thought of a Messiah that would be betrayed and then murdered even more so unthinkable. And then the thought of this like rock star Jewish Messiah murdered by his own Jewish leaders, 
even more so unthinkable. So we have, I'm trying to like make sense of why the disciples couldn't quite catch on to this each of these three times that Matthew, or that Jesus tells them what's gonna happen. So Matthew is preparing us, the reader, for what is coming for Jesus. Um, and Jesus is un unsuccessfully trying to prepare the disciples for what is coming. So with that in mind, let's move on to the main part of our passage for tonight, verses 24 through 27. After Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma temple tax came to Peter and asked, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Yes, he does, he replied. When Peter came into the house, Jesus was the first to speak. What do you think, Simon? Another name for Peter. What do you think, Simon, he asked. From whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes? from their own children or from others? From others, Peter answered. Then the children are exempt, Jesus said to him. But so that we may not cause offense, go to the lake and throw out your line. Take the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and you will find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my tax and yours. So Jesus and his disciples have come down from this mountain, the transfiguration. They've just left the crowds where there was this sick boy that his father had brought to be healed by Jesus in the previous passage. And now they're back at home base in Capernaum, right by the Sea of Galilee, maybe at Peter's house. Some people approach Peter, maybe because they're at his house or because they know that Peter's kind of the first among equals of the disciples. Um, and they, uh, they ask Peter, they're, and they're called the, the collectors of the two drachma temple tax. If you need a good band name, you can steal that one. We've mentioned tax collectors before, but these are different tax collectors. So the standard tax collectors that we talk about in the Gospels are Jewish people who function as like corrupt IRS on behalf of Rome, the oppressors of Israel. So they were utterly hated by their people. They worked for the enemy, they got rich working for their enemy, they often extorted like extra money from their own people, so they were like the worst of the worst. Uh, these tax collectors in this story though are different. So um, way back in Exodus 30, we read about God kind of asking and requiring of the people of Israel, men over the age of 20, to give half of a shekel either once in their lifetime or maybe once a year, it kind of depends on how you read it, in order to service the tabernacle. So the tabernacle is like the mobile temple, it's this big tent set up and that's where God's people interacted with God as they were moving through the desert and the wilderness. Later in Israel's history in what's called the second temple period, so after Israel is exiled and then they return and they rebuild the second temple and so it's called the second temple period, um, they reinstitute this temple tax, half a shekel per year. Um, scholars think this was about the equivalent of like a few days average wages. So it's not a crazy amount. Um, and it seems that most good Jewish men happily paid this two drachma temple tax to help upkeep the temple. Uh, Robert Mounts, a Bible scholar says, refusal to pay the tax would indicate a decision to withdraw from the religious community. Even the Essenes at Qumran, who had separated from Jerusalem in protest against the temple and its priesthood, paid the half shekel tax. So it is this different kind of temple tax collectors that come to Peter and ask him. And what they ask, they are asking in a way where they assume the answer is right. They're like, your master pays the temple tax, right? And then we get to verse 25. Yes, he does, Peter replied. 
When Peter came into the house, Jesus was the first to speak. What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes? From their own children or from others? So these temple tax collectors question Peter about whether Jesus pays the tax, and Peter may have already talked to Jesus about this before, or in this classic Peter form is maybe just like, of course he pays the temple tax, who are you, you know? So Peter goes inside the house, and either Jesus overheard the conversation, or Jesus overheard the conversation in ways that only Jesus could, and he picks up as if they were already talking about this. The way that this is phrased in the original language is like Jesus was the first to speak in a conversation that they had already been having. And he asks Peter if the kings of the earth collect taxes from their own children or from other people. And the answer in a culture like theirs is obviously that the kings tax their subjects or their citizens, not their own children. That's kind of the perk of being in a royal family, I bet. Uh, R.T. France, another Bible scholar, says the principle assumed by Jesus' question and Peter's response is that rulers exempt those closest to them from taxation. Whatever our modern democratic ideals may suggest, that seems a valid observation of the natural human tendency as it would have been experienced in the first century. <laughs> so Peter correctly replies that the kings collect taxes from others, not their own children. And then Jesus responds in verse 26, then the children are exempt. This verse has Huge implications, which we're gonna come back to a little bit later. But for now, the idea is that Jesus has implied that because he, and also by his extension, the disciples are children of God, that they don't need to pay a tax to upkeep the house of their father. In the same way that Caesar wouldn't tax his own children, so, says Jesus, our father won't tax his own children for the upkeep of the house of the Lord. So it begs the question, if God's children don't need to pay the temple tax, what happens to the temple? And the question, we'll return to that at the end just for a little bit. Um, verse 27, but so that we may not cause offense, go to the lake and throw out your line, take the first fish you catch, open its mouth and you will find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my tax and yours. So Jesus in this moment chose not to cause trouble with these temple tax collectors. Jesus caused plenty of trouble. We've been reading about it. We'll read about more of it. But in this moment, chose not to. He had the right as the son of God to not pitch in for utilities for their house. But he suspended that right in this moment so that he wouldn't offend or cause these people, these temple collectors, to stumble or sin. The Greek verb for um, giving offense here is used a lot in the, in the New Testament. It's this verb scandalizo, or in the, the noun form is scandalon, which is a stumbling block, a stone of offense, a rock that you trip up on. And the verb is like this figure of speech where um, the idea is not just tripping physically, but that you would spiritually trip someone up, that you would cause them to stumble or to sin. So Jesus isn't worried about offending them. He offended many people in many different ways but he was worried about causing them to trip up spiritually and to, to stumble into some kind of sin or to violate their conscience. Um, again, this word is used over and over again in the Gospels and in Paul's letters about causing someone to stumble, not just offending them with a the thought that they don't like. Um, that is another thing that we're gonna come back to at the end. Then Peter, uh, he tells Peter to go catch a fish, open the fish's mouth, and find a four drachma coin to pay both Jesus's and Peter's temple tax. So there's some debate among scholars as to whether or not this miracle actually happened, which is kind of a weird thing, um, perhaps, if that's the first time you've heard of it, but um, the first reason uh, 
Bible nerds are skeptical is because Matthew usually tells us when, if and when a miracle happens. He'll say the person was healed or they picked up their mat and walked or the demon left them or the food was multiplied and everyone ate. In this case, Jesus just tells Peter to go catch the fish, find the coin and pay the tax. Matthew doesn't say after that, and Peter went away, caught the fish, and just as Jesus had said, he found the coin in the mouth of the fish. He doesn't say that. The story just ends with the instruction that Jesus gave Peter. The second reason that maybe there's some skepticism about whether this is a miracle that actually took place is that there were a good number at this time, a good number of kind of contemporary folk tales that involved people finding money or valuables in the mouths of fish. I've never had that happen to me, maybe you have, but apparently it was a thing that they told stories about. So it's possible Jesus was kind of doing some little joke with Peter here. Uh, The third reason why maybe we're a little skeptical is that Peter is, after all, a fisherman. So Jesus could be in a kind of tongue-in-cheek way telling Peter, go do your job and earn us some money so that we can pay this temple tax. Um, The interesting part, though, uh, to kind of play devil's advocate to the devil's advocate, I don't know what you call that, uh, Jesus doesn't tell Peter to go throw out a net, which would be the standard way for a fisherman to go catch lots of fish and make some money. He tells Peter to throw out a line and to catch a single fish. That could be an unimportant detail or it just could be the way that Jesus happened to say it. Um, Or maybe Jesus really did intend Peter to go catch one fish and in that uh, fish's mouth would be the coin. Matthew doesn't tell us if it happened and for that reason, we as the Bible readers who trust Jesus can just say, okay, doesn't matter really. What we do get to do is focus on the two most important things that I think are said in this passage and that have a lot to do with us today and we'll spend the rest of our time talking about them just for a little bit here. Um, One of them being in verse 26 when Jesus says the children are exempt. So we'll talk about that at the very end. But the other is in verse 27 when Jesus says, so that we may not cause offense. I think this is a brilliant line of Jesus and just matters so much for us today. Um, So in the context of this verse, again, Jesus acknowledged the son of God or the children of God do not need to pay tax for the temple of God. God does not tax his children. However, this has the potential to cause problems for this, these temple tax collectors. For, for Jesus to refuse to pay would signal to those tax collectors that Jesus wanted nothing to do with the temple, which would be troubling because Jesus was claiming to be this Jewish teacher who spoke for God. He had Jewish disciples who were talking about this coming kingdom of God. And the temple was like the physical, local, like central location for how people would interact with God. The presence of God was thought to be there. The sacred writings were there. The priests were there. The men that would mediate the relationship between Israel and God. So to put it simply, the temple was like the place where God's relationship with humanity was kind of facilitated and mediated and in a certain way, it existed there um, in a really special way. And so for Jesus to say, I'm God's son and I don't need to pay this tax nor do any other of God's children, uh, it wouldn't just like bother them. They wouldn't be mad that Jesus like stiffed them on a tip or something. It probably would disturb and like upend their whole system of how they and how others should relate to God. It would be a stumbling block, a scandal on. And so Jesus says to Peter, we don't need to in this moment cause turmoil or offend them maybe cause them to sin, so how about we just pay this tax? Um, I think this is one of the most timely pictures of the character of Jesus for us, um, the church. He was certainly not afraid to offend people, um, but didn't want to do it unless it was totally necessary. 
This tax was not an issue Jesus thought worthy of causing a fuss over with these guys. He had the, he had the freedom in his own conscience to not pay this tax, but knew it might cause problems for their conscience, might cause deeper issues for them, so he just paid it. Um, Bible scholar Robert Mount says, to insist upon one's rights in a case like this, like Jesus's, would be to indulge in what Schweizer calls a negative legalism or reverse legalism, which holds that fundamental freedom must be demonstrated at all costs and is therefore no better than positive legalism. So Jesus could have exercised his freedom but chose not to do so. He sets an example for us when it comes to gray areas. So when we have the freedom to do something that others might not think they have the freedom to do, or when we choose not to do something that others think they do have the freedom to do, we need to take, we need to follow Jesus' example and be humble and take the actual low, humble approach and when possible, not cause people to stumble or cause offense. We have another example of this in the New Testament that we're gonna look at for a little bit um, that I think is helpful. So there's this, uh, in the time of the New Testament, this new church, thoroughly pagan in a non-Jewish town called Corinth. They had temples where they would sacrifice to various pagan gods. Um, some were temples with temple prostitutes, and that's how you worshiped and sacrificed there. And some were other, ty- other types of temples with animal sacrifices to various gods. And when these animal sacrifices were all done, the meat would eventually be brought to the market to be sold. So this presented an issue for this new church in Corinth. So imagine uh, you're in Corinth and you met Jesus through the preaching of this fiery, short Jew named Paul. You hear the gospel and you decide to follow Jesus for the first time and you realize like all this like dark, evil stuff that you are a part of in these temples that you used to go to. And you're just like got this contrast of the way life was before and the way life is now with Jesus. But that temple's still there. There's still people all around you that are part of that way of life. But now you're, you're, now you're with the, the family of God. And imagine you sit down for dinner with the people in your church, a small group, and they bring out the main course. And it is meat from an animal that was sacrificed at that temple that worshiped Apollo or Aphrodite or something. So it might create a real problem in your conscience. It might like really disturb you and kind of upend how you think about what it means to follow Jesus and what's good and what's not good. You might ask like, is it a sin for me to eat this animal that was in that temple? Am I I supporting the temple? Is there something now spiritually evil or wrong about the actual meat in front of me since it was offered to another God? Perhaps it would remind people of their days before they met Jesus. And so it is into this context that Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 8. I'm going to start in verse 4. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that, and I think what's happening here, it's in quotes. I think Paul is quoting a letter that the Corinthians might have actually sent to him previously. So we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, idols are not a thing, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are all are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. Yet for us, there is but one God, the Father from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. So Paul is establishing pretty quickly here, there may or may not be other lowercase g spiritual forces, lowercase g gods. It doesn't matter because we know that Jesus is the one true God. But he says in verse seven, But not everyone possesses this knowledge. 
Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god, and since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. So the idea here is that Christians bring to the family of God, to, to any like local church context, whether that's a house group or a big church or anything, Christians bring different levels of understanding to the table when they come together. Different backgrounds, different contexts, and so to some in Corinth, it would have been a huge deal to interact with anything related to their old temple ways, including and especially the meat that would have been from a sacrificed animal. But to other Christians in that church community, they understood at a deeper level, they understood what Paul was saying, that it's just food, it's just meat. It's not going to suck me into my pagan ways, it's just my dinner. So Paul calls the person who doesn't understand that it's just meat, the person who would be caused to stumble or sin, he calls this person the weaker brother or sister. That sounds negative. There's really no way around that connotation, but I don't think that that's the intent of Paul. I wish there was a, a better word than weak here. But he encourages the stronger brother, the one who understands the situation, to prefer and to take care of the weaker brother by abstaining from eating the meat in this context. So he agrees, Paul agrees that these Christians in Corinth have the right to eat meat, it's just food, it's fine. But then he says in verse nine, be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. And then in 13, therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. So Paul, similar to what Jesus showed us in his life, Paul um, encourages us in certain contexts to suspend our rights to help our brothers and sisters who don't understand something in the way that you do. So for Paul in Corinth, it was about meat. Uh, another issue that Paul had was about his, his compensation for his work in the church. Um, he had, so he says he has the right, according to the word of Jesus, the, right, the word of the Lord, he has the right to earn an income from his preaching and teaching for all these churches that he planted. Um, but in some cases, he suspended that right uh, for the sake of his brothers and sisters who might have been hung up on paying their church planting pastor, I suppose. And so Jesus' example in our passage in Matthew was about paying this temple tax. These temple tax collectors were Jesus's Jewish brothers, in a sense, part of the family of God. And he chose to pay that tax, though he didn't have to, he chose to do so, so that he wouldn't cause them to stumble. Um, there are so many examples that we could talk about that I could start listing off today. And um, if you think of one better than what I share here, you can come up and tell me after. 
and we can talk about it. But I think a good example, it would be the use of alcohol in the Christian community. Um, some people in the church have struggled with alcoholism. Maybe they did before they met Jesus, and so that's kind of a marker for them of like, that was my, the old me, and I can't do that ever again. Some people maybe after they met Jesus. Regardless, this person can't drink anymore. Uh, it just doesn't work. They associate drinking with drunkenness. They can't have one. They have to have like five or six, and they just can't do it anymore, and they maybe associate that with dark seasons in their life. Others in the church don't struggle with alcoholism and can have a beer or two and not be tempted towards drunkenness and escape. Um, Paul's letter to Corinth and then Jesus' words to these temple tax collectors set the standard for how we should respond to the varying, um, not opinions, but varying like understandings of gray areas that we bring in to the church. Paul and Jesus set the standard here for how we respond. So, uh, if we can suspend the exercise of a freedom we, we have to help our church family, we do it. We prefer and we help and we love the quote unquote weaker person among us. This is not saying that because some Christians somewhere else may have issues with alcohol then no Christian should ever drink anywhere. It's saying that if there's a brother or sister in your immediate circle, in your life, who you know struggles with this and knows that if you participate in that with them or around them that it causes them strain and it makes it difficult for them to continue to follow Jesus in a certain way, that's the person that we have to protect. Even if it means if you suspend a freedom that you know is fine and okay for you. So in my community, um, I think we had a conversation about this can we nod people in my group? Did we have a conversation about this? Okay, yes. Um, I, can't, I just couldn't remember if I asked people individually or if we like talked about it at the table. But we talked about alcohol in our community. And I think I asked the group, again, maybe individually or together, hey, if anyone has any history or issue with alcohol and if having beer or wine here at this table would be a problem for you, we won't do it, we won't hesitate. But tell us how you feel. And I think everything was okay with our group. Um, and so there's a Matt from our group, Bruce amazing beer and he brings a growler most Tuesdays and it's wonderful. But if we add someone to our group someday who has an issue or a past or history of some kind, we would stop in a heartbeat to help protect this brother or sister in their journey with Jesus. Um, again, there are so many things that this applies to. I think there are elements of this conversation that apply to the conversation about CBD and THC products. I think it can apply to media that we consume, like movies and books and music. Um, don't get me wrong, I think there are plenty of things that no follower of Jesus should ever ingest or consume. But there are a lot of gray areas and areas that require conversation and humility and tact. Um, not to touch a sore subject, but I think mask wearing is probably like a super complex gray area for the church in respect to this that hopefully I mean, may yet again um, require us to be humble towards one another in this way. But I think the main point, um, the thing that I've just kind of been sitting with today and thinking about is that uh, I don't think Jesus wants us to offend people. That we should do what we can to not be offensive or a cause for someone to trip up. And it could be me, just me, but I feel like I've noticed an attitude amongst some Christians who almost consider it a badge of honor when their understanding of the Bible or certain various doctrinal issues, when they understand them in a way that would cause offense to someone, that would be kind of like a hard position that would 
bother someone. Um, saying things like, hey, if you don't like it, you can take it up with God. They almost feel emboldened or proud to be willing to hold this offensive position. And it just makes me sad. And there's a, a place for us to hold doctrinal truths firmly. That doesn't mean we have to throw them in people's faces in a way that is offensive. Now, the Bible is uh, offensive. Jesus is offensive. The Bible calls the gospel itself a scandalon, a stumbling block. But followers of Jesus, in, in how we talk about Scripture and how we interact with people, we should not aim for being offensive. The gospel can and does do that on its own in a way that ideally ends up bringing people back under the love and the grace of God. I think we should aim for being loving and peaceful and winsome in how we live and how we talk about the things of God. So loving and peaceful that we're willing to suspend our freedoms, perhaps, to acknowledge that you may have a different background or understanding than me, and so I'll humble myself and listen to you and do what I can to help you on your journey with Jesus. Um, in the language of Philippians, to consider others more important than yourselves. R.T. France says, while there are times when a disciple must make an unpopular stand and so alienate others, many of the issues and practices on which we might legitimately differ from conventional assumptions are not worth fighting over. So that's the first thing for us to um, ponder as the people of God to think about the example of Jesus in not causing offense when it's not necessary. The second thing is the concept where Jesus says the children are exempt. When he asks Peter, who pays the taxes in this royal household? And Peter says, not the children. The children are exempt, Jesus says. Um, I ran out of time to unpack what this, all that this means, but I'll try to do it really, really quickly with a quote. <laughs> Michael Wilkins says, the temple is his father's own house. So since Jesus is the son of God, his father, he is exempt from the temple tax. And Jesus' disciples, now part of the father's family, are likewise exempt. This is a profound Christological statement indicating not only Jesus' relationship by analogy to his father, the ultimate king, but also the way in which he is the fulfillment of the law. There will no longer be a need for sacrifice in the temple because his cross will be the final sacrifice. Hence, there will be no temple tax for Jesus' disciples. So Jesus' ministry, uh, his death, when uh, the temple curtain was torn in half, uh, Jesus sending the Holy Spirit to dwell inside of the church, um, we have become, as the children of God, we have become his temple. We no longer need a priest to mediate between us and God. Jesus is our mediator. We no longer need to sacrifice because Jesus was our once and for all sacrifice. So when Jesus says the children are exempt, it is this heavy and beautiful, logical first domino that is just starting all these beautiful things that are about to happen for the church. If the children of God don't pay the temple tax, who pays the temple tax? No one, then the temple goes into disrepair. And so what happens? The temple goes away. Jesus even says in John, tear down the temple and I will rebuild it in three days. Jesus brings us into the new covenant where we each can be in God's presence all the time through the Holy Spirit. 
And so that line, the children are exempt, is this super rich um, concept that basically enables us to do what we're doing right now in this very room, to be in the presence of God and to enjoy the forgiveness that we've received from the sacrifice of Jesus and sing praise to him without someone mediating that process, but just all of us together, but also each of us individually um, being with Jesus and praising him. And so that's what we should do right now. So would you bow your heads? Let's pray together. Jesus, we are thankful that the children are exempt that as your sons and daughters, we have access to your presence in this moment because the blood of Jesus has cleansed us from all unrighteousness. We can be with you, clean and pure and in your presence. And so as we do this, both individually and our own spirits that we talk to you and we sing to you and we listen for you and as we do it as a church family where we we sing the same words together and we invite your presence to be with us would you just bless this church would your presence encourage us and give us strength give us wisdom to know how to be just like Jesus in this story where we bring humility and wisdom to know how not to give offense when we do not need to We love you, Jesus. Would you receive honor from this church right now? Amen.